Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 92. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, my special guest is Mr. Haggis McLeod. Before we talk to Haggis, let's thank our sponsors, starting with sponsor number one, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Without the IJA, this podcast would not be possible. So go to juggle.org, find out about this great group of jugglers, the IJA. I also sponsor this podcast. My new product is my book, Alex the Great, a novel about a young street performer, available at Amazon.com. Now, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Haggis McLeod. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 92. My special guest, Mr. Haggis McLeod. Welcome, Haggis. Hello, Dan. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I don't get to see you... Uh, Often enough. It's only been a few times in our lifetime, but I've always enjoyed it. Yes, I remember seeing you the first time in louvain la neuve in Belgium, back in, I think, about 84, that convention. Yeah, and then uh, I remember also Festival of Fools in Belfast. Oh, yes, yes. That lovely shopping centre will put us in. Oh, <laughs> I remember, yes. That was a very difficult festival because uh, Belfast tends to rain, and it was an outdoor festival, so we did, we did have our difficulties. I've been there a few more times than you, and we, we chose a bad one that weekend. That one, it did rain. But it's a beautiful city and one of my favorites. I love the way they pass the hat, but that you give it to the festival. Yeah, because the festival are paying you to do the shows, or maybe you didn't know that. I don't know. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I did know that. They paid you out front, and then everything yeah. you made went back to the festival in the hat. Yeah. yeah. I thought that made a very nice environment where all the people were very supportive of each other making the biggest hats possible because we knew they would go back to the festival. Yeah, I mean, it was a lovely event, and Will Chamberlain, um, God rest his soul, was a wonderful man, and along with several others in Belfast, really made the community circus there and the whole circus and street theatre happen in Belfast. I mean, I saw it from maybe for over the last 20 years I've been going there. The changes to that city have been enormous. It's a wonderful festival, and part of the spirit of it was from, from Chamberlain because he was such a... A, a wonderful guy, a very great host. And he brought me out there twice, which was uh, very appreciative uh, of him. I think he brought me back the second time because he never watched me the first time. Yeah, he's like all the good promoters. They just book the acts they want to see themselves. That's that's true. Yeah, because there's a little bit of a, they have a, a kind of a festival highlight show in that beautiful little square where every act does about five minutes or so, six minutes. Yeah. And he yeah. saw me there and he thought, I should have seen your show I'm going to invite you back. So. Lovely, lovely. Great square, really good acoustics. Very nice, nice square to work on. Very nice. Hey, let's go back to the very beginning. But first, let me ask you about your, your name. Uh, I didn't realize that your first name is really Ian. I always just knew you as Haggis. No, and not, not a lot of people do, in fact, but now you've said it, they all know. Now, let me um, ask you about the name Haggis, though, because I first heard of Haggis as, of course, the Scottish dish that's uh, it's stuffed inside of a sheep's stomach. We call it a delicacy. The name Haggis came because my mother came from Edinburgh and had a very broad Scots accent. And I grew up in a lovely, beautiful city down here called Bath. And going to school every day, when I was li literally five or six, being taken to school with my mother, the kids cottoned on that my mother had a strange accent. Therefore, I was from Scotland, even though I wasn't really. I mean, I was brought up in Bath. Um, and the kids started to call me Haggis and Hamish and all these, you know, 
Jock and all these names. And Ian, at that time, um, English people tended to call it Iron. So I was called Iron or I was called E, neither of which I liked. I mean, I got this all sort of back after, you know, after I analysed why. And from about the age of 10 or 12, everybody called me Haggis. Now, it's a term of endearment, I guess, but it's sort of based on the idea that from the Scottish dish. Um, but- yes, that's where it comes from because of its uniqueness to the Scottish culture. But it's not uncommon to come across people, let's say expatriates, who are called Haggis. You know, I'm sure there's a few around. But would someone name their child Haggis? No, no. The nearest I've come to it, and this is quite interesting, in a QI sort of way, the nearest I've come to Haggis is Haggai, which is H-A-G-I, or H-A-G-G-I, which means born on the day of a festival, which I thought was very appropriate. Unfortunately, MacLeod does mean son of the ugly one. <laughs> now, actually, the name too was very, the, the spelling uh, was interesting. Because I didn't think it would be spelled M-C-L-E-O-D. Yes, that's the normal way of spelling the cloud. The, the other ways really are, are bastardizations, if I can say that. Yeah, because the only time I've ever heard the name McCloud, I think it was from the movie Highlander. Yes. Which is yes. a great movie, of course. Great movie. Um, it's a fairly common name in this country, certainly in a lot of expats. I mean, if you go to Australia, the amount of McCloud streams or rivers you know it was a it's a a fairly common scottish name and what kind of family were you born into how many brothers and sisters and what did your parents do my father was in the army in the war along with his two brothers Uh, so three of them went off to war and luckily three of them came back my father served in india as a sergeant and then i was then he came back from war married my mother my mother came from Scotland. My father came from Wales. So yesterday's rugby match was right in my territory. It was great. It was a great match, and I didn't really mind who won. So my mother was worked during the war um, making munitions, so in a munitions factory. After the war, she became a seamstress. And then I was born when my mother was 42 and my father was 40. So I was born into a family... A poor family. I mean, a poor family. Uh, We lived in three rooms. I had a sister. I have a sister still, lovely lady called Margaret, who's 18 years older than me. So at about the time I was born, she was just leaving, you know, and just, I think I I was the page boy at her wedding when I was four. Now, were you unexpected? Was this an unexpected uh, child? Well, you could say like that if you wanted to, Dan. You could say like that, or you could say... I was to, um, my sister was to show that they could have children and I was to show that they could still have children. That's how I like to think about it. <laughs> Would they especially be late in life, like that you were a late in life child? Yeah, because when I was growing up, my sister was, I suppose, when I got to know my sister, she was 20 and my mother was 44. So it always felt like my sister was an aunt. I wish I'd known my parents for longer. I was an orphan by the age of 27. Yeah, it must be difficult to have older parents because it's uh, like a generation removed even. Yes, certainly almost a generation removed. Yes, I could have been, but we've checked. I could have been my daughter, my sister's child. I know what you're saying. I wasn't saying that. (laughs) No, 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 but it's, hey, you read about it every day. Yes, yes. I think that's the plot of Chinatown, the movie with uh, Jack Nicholson, but... Oh, yeah, okay. That's a whole other story. So, yeah, I grew up in a 
poor family in three rooms. I'm a poor family, but a very happy family. My father had a massive, um, what we call an, an allotment here in England, which is sort of, um, I don't know, a quarter of acre of ground about a mile from where we lived, that he would produce all the food. We barely used to go shopping. He would, you know, all through the year, we'd have food from the garden, a lot of veg. And would you help with that? Was that something you were a chore that you were given? Yeah. 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 I have vivid memories of getting deliveries of horse manure over the fence by truck <laughs> by the gypsies. And then I loved picking up horse manure with my hands. I mean, we're talking manure mixed with straw. So not just horse poop, but sure, manure. Sure, sure. I just loved the smell of it. I mean, it was just lovely. And I remember I liked worms and I liked digging. And um, now as a grandfather and having a garden here, if you've got grandchildren, plant potatoes because the look in their eye when they unearth potatoes out of the ground is wonderful. That's wonderful. What about those potato bugs? Have you ever seen those? The potato, potato bugs. The potato bugs. I think we were called Jerusalem crickets. Oh, we don't get those, but you, you generally, as long as you um, cycle through different pieces of land and don't plant potatoes in the same place, we don't have them here like you do, certainly. You, you get weevils, maybe. Maybe that's but they're not crickets. Now, these were like a very, very nasty looking bug that if a child came across, I remember I saw them when I was quite young and I've never forgotten them. They're, they're quite evil looking. So if you have grandkids, watch out for the, uh, the potato bugs. Now, when, okay. did that, when did circus and juggling uh, get into your life? At school, I was really into maths and physics and woodwork and technical drawing and running and rugby. Not so much into English because I had a I missed a couple of key years of school or at least a year of school because I um I had a, I developed a, a serious hernia and I also had an iron deficiency. So I missed like a whole I remember walking into school aged about five and a half, six, and they were singing the ABC song. And I didn't know what that was. And ever since then, I was sort of playing catch up on English. So I was very into maths and physics, and I lived in a town that had affiliations with the Ministry of Defense. And so I was pushed into the idea of becoming a electronics engineer in the Ministry of Defense. And for my interview, I made a Dolby system. And I remember walking in, I was terrified. I walked into this big office, this massive table, three very old men there smoking pipes, smelling of tobacco. And they asked me to explain how a Dolby system worked. And I explained it to them and they gave me a job. And we went on a recce and it was serious stuff. We would have ended up building warheads for Polaris nuclear submarines. And this involved moving from school to a fairly secret base. You know, you arrive there and it's all, um, you know, bungalows, you know, single story houses and then lift shafts down into the ground. And then I saw it and just thought, I don't want to spend four years underground. So I just didn't turn up. I just ignored it all, by which time I'd been working in a restaurant doing washing up and suddenly I had access to money. So I worked more in the restaurant. And in those days, I was earning probably better money and having more fun than I ever have in my life. You know, comparatively, I was like 17, 18 years old, just moved out of my house with my parents and moved in with a lady and I was earning good money. And... I, after two years there, so I was about 19, I went to France to do work in a restaurant to learn better French. And I worked in a restaurant, that was pretty much fun, on the, on the Côte de Vermeil, so that's the, between France and Spain on the Mediterranean coast. 
Uh, and then I went grape picking and uh, veg picking very close by to a place called Perpignan, which is in southern France. And there we were doing the vendage, the grape picking, with Spanish gypsies. And these, we happened to be camped in a golden, delicious apple orchard. And one of the gypsies taught me how to juggle with three apples. That became quickly very addictive, very addictive. It just hit something in me, just the maths just clicked. And I went, I'd always been into to ball sports. I, I was always a goalkeeper at school. I always had a ball in my hand. There are pictures of me very young through different stages, always with a ball of some sort. So I had an affiliation with hysterical objects. I think that's one of the best stories I've heard. Taught in the apple orchards by Spanish gypsies. <laughs> and then every Friday night, they'd have you'd sit around the fire with these gypsies. They were really the bosses, you know. Yeah. And you'd be expected to do something. And so what I did very quickly was I took a 55-gallon oil drum, turned it on its side, learned to walk on it, and juggled three apples. That was probably the first show I ever did in a field in France. Now, when you say you were interested in maths, like, we don't use that term maths. Is it, just, is it just a way of saying mathematics? Or is that different? Yeah, mathematics. Mathematics. I was, it was the only class at school that I kind of went home and did all the homework and did more and more and more. And I was always in the advanced class for maths for um, most of my school life. And do you think that uh, people interested in mathematics have kind of a natural inclination towards juggling because of the patterns and the complexity? Yes, absolutely. You see it all the time. I think you yourself would say the same thing. Yeah, the jugglers that I've met coming out of Cambridge, look at what the, the developments they did. Um, MIT jugglers, I know. Yeah, a lot of mathematicians love juggling because of its complexity in a three-dimensional space. It's lovely. Oh, I could see there's lots of examples here in the States, of, you know, of, uh, mathematics, Dan Bennett, or there was Boppo, or Arthur LaBelle comes to mind, or these very intellectual people it's just for me i'd never had any interest in mathematics at all and so when site swap came i was totally baffled and never got involved are you a site swap person yourself no i wasn't i wasn't at all because i don't know why i wasn't i think it it happened just after i'd started i didn't really understand it nor did i want to understand it because all i really cared about at that time was upping my length of my seven balls and my five club back crosses and i could tell in a way that it wasn't a strict enough rule. I don't think it really still is. Some of the numbers aren't exact enough for me, you know, and it, I was never interested. Having said that now, over the last few years, I often just pick five ball site swaps and have a go just for the fun of them. It's nice. I think for me, it was also just wasn't, you know, I was more immersed in the comedy juggling side of it. And of course, that's where you kind of made your mark as well. What year did you meet uh, Charlie Dancy and put together your show with, uh, with Charlie? So I would have come back from France. I was headhunted to another restaurant when I walked back, kind of came back to, from, to Bath. So I came back to Bath in about 81, 82. And the luckiest thing happened is that at that time in the country, there were very few juggling workshops. Uh, there was one at the YMCA in London. I can't remember the name of it. Something. Oh, uh, but there was also one in Bath that was being run by a juggler called Nicky B, who had started a juggling company called Butterfingers and was selling single piece plastic clubs, European shape, but very hard plastic, very durable, more like 10 pin bowling pins. There was a workshop in Bath and I went and I must have gone there. It's funny, it was actually held in Walcott Village Hall 
And that was where my sister, Margaret, when she was younger, had gone to school. It was a beautiful little church hall. And every week there'd be at least a dozen, maybe 10, a dozen jugglers, maybe more. I remember learning clubs for the first time and walking back from the workshop to my house, juggling clubs all the way, as you always did when you learned clubs, because it was just so amazing. And I remember seeing people like Alex Dandridge, the first person I ever saw do five clubs. I mean, you've got to remember in those days, Dan, we couldn't look up at the internet. All we had really a few years later was hooky videos coming out of Germany, care of Karl Heinz Ethan. So at that time in 83, 84, there was nothing. You could have pictures, you know, you could get the um, IGA magazine then, I suppose, and you could look at pictures of people, but you really didn't see a lot. I remember, I remember clearly watching Alex do five clubs and just thinking, wow. I remember Chris from the Mendezes doing five balls and five ball banks and thinking, wow. And to this day, I think those jugglers you see first of all, I mean, the biggest impression for me, I would say, was Ignatov and the Russians that were touring with the circus in England. That's where you could see them. I think those people, I saw what they were doing, and that's the level I was um, aspiring to. Now, when you, after you learned it was at the, the waterfront or the Walcott Village juggling workshop, mm. did you immediately start to practice like seriously or, or did it sort of take a while to kind of become your thing? I was definitely addicted, but I also I had a full-time job working in a, a restaurant in Bath. So what I would do is on I'd have Sundays off. So Saturday, if I could, I'd work the lunchtime shift. What, what started happening was at Walcott Village Hall was that, that we had Bath on our doorstep as a busking pitch as well. So mm. Nicky would say, oh, let's go out onto the streets and let's advertise a show or something that he put on or something. So we'd go out there in clown makeup and we'd just stand and juggle, you know. And then it was like, oh, well, you could make money doing this. And then met Charlie. Charlie was working with another juggler called Mickey Taylor, who was uh, is a lovely man. He and Charlie split up from working together. And then me and Charlie ended up working together. And by about the end of 83, beginning of 84, Charlie and I were going over to Bristol to um, the waterfront. One of the things we did was we knew we didn't want to try out the show in our own backyard. So we went to Bristol where we could knock out maybe five shows a day nobody would bother us you know the hats weren't great but i think when you're beginning it's the number of shows you just want to go out and knock out shows and every time you finish a show you go back and go okay we can do this differently we can do that differently and you can get a lot of development work done in a short time and that sounds very romantic that your first show is at the the waterfront of the bristol docks as far as uh, <laughs> was it romantic or was it just hard it, I don't remember it being romantic. I remember it being <laughs> quite cold, and um, we, it was a funny. It was a funny little pitch. It was only about three or four meters wide, and it was brick, and it was slightly concave. So people would walk down. There was just this one little place, sort of place. Now you'd go there, and there'd be a burger van or something parked up. It was just great. You didn't need microphones. The audience, you didn't, you couldn't get too big a crowd, but we weren't attracting too, uh, you know, attracting too big a crowd. And it just organically grew. And then we went back to Bath. And then once we were doing shows in Bath, so beginning of 84 and into 85, then it became like, okay, now we can make money on this. So I, on a Saturday, I'd often do the first shift in the restaurant, come out of the restaurant about two o'clock, literally change. And we'd go down to the pitch and I'd knock out shows for an hour. And then I'd go back to the restaurant for the evening shift. And how far is Bath from York? 
Bath from York is, I can tell you, it takes three and a half hours to drive it. So I think it's probably about 180 miles. So I remember seeing the pitch there and I was so enamored of it. I started calling myself Dan of York. Because <laughs> I had this image of just that, of having a little pitch in my town that I could just run down to and do shows. And I thought that pitch in York, uh, I don't think I ever saw the one in Bath. Mm. But I thought that one in York was just so nicely uh, set up for not huge shows, but for very enjoyable shows. Did you work that one as well? No, I never. Why? The only place I ever really worked, unless we were booked to do a street festival, we went to London, you know, to do Covent Garden. And it's a two hour, two and a half hour journey to London from Bath, you know, by the time you've sorted it all out and got to Covent. And then you've got to do, so then you've got to arrive there really early in the morning and you wait for one show. And if it's not a great show, you go home again. So it was better for us to go to Bath and knock out at that time, really in the, in the mid eighties, you'd only get two or three acts on a Saturday. So everybody would get two shows, you know, if not three, you get more income from Bath and the Bath pitch. I like a tight pitch. I don't like big open squares. I mean, Covent Garden is great because it's the pinnacle, you know, it's the place to do it. And that's where you get noticed maybe, and you're in the capital and you, you know, you're going for the bright lights. But Bath, it's nice. It's got, it's about 25 meters deep and then it's got a three story building. So I very quickly realized that with the voice, you're putting your voice out to that wall and it's bouncing back until the nineties and the two thousands, we never even considered using mics. We didn't need to. And what were some of the first like professional jobs you guys did? Did you start with that with festivals or what kind of what kind of venues were available to you? Oh, it went it went very strange because at that time there really weren't that juggling was up and coming at that point. You know, Klutz, uh, the first beanbags when I came back from France, the first beanbags I bought were the Klutz three beanbags. The square ones? Yeah, oh, yeah, the square ones. Oh, awful, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they were okay. Well, okay. They were okay. I mean, they were okay. I mean, they were as good as any, as beanbags go. Okay. We had been doing shows. We'd been going to the workshop. You know, the workshop was really well attended. People would come by, good jugglers. Always learn from better jugglers. That's the way to learn. Any names stick out as people you learned from and you saw at that time? Um, I would go back to Alex. I'd go back to Chris from the Mendezes, who then worked with Alex. Um, hadn't quite... Ooh, maybe I just sort of started meeting Sean. Sean Gandini was probably the first person I went to Covent Garden one day thinking I was good at seven balls. And there was Sean. And I think I won the first time in a seven ball endurance. And then he was just always winning. He was always that little bit better and he always still will be. Um, uh, so Sean, yeah. Uh, other influences I met, there weren't a lot until I started traveling. I mean, I would have said that convention at Louvain Le Nerve, which was my first European, that opened my eyes out. Watching Popovich on that ladder, meeting uh, yourself, meeting, was it you and Barry there? Yeah, we were there. We, we were in the show too. Boy, Popovich was like a rock star, wasn't he? At yeah, that, yeah. At that festival. So dynamic. And on the on the table, all, with the ladder and the, and the, you know, at his peak of his uh, technical, oh. That was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful performance you gave there. And I remember, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, the, the one thing I'd like to see again, which I try and explain to people, was the Alan Jacobs routine where he never juggled anything. I thought that was the cleverest thing I'd ever seen. It made me just go, how, why are we bothering? Do you remember that? <laughs> he had he had a white spotlight on a black background playing a projection of himself yeah. to five balls. God, that was good. And I'd love to show that to people. I mean, not that they should rip it off, but just 
just to give you an idea of how creative you can be. It was a wonderful routine. It's very memorable. I remember that routine as well. I don't think he ever really did that again, at least never at a festival. I, I asked him to do it when I put a show together and he, I think he said he just didn't do it anymore. So He didn't do it anymore. He didn't do any. I mean, it was the best routine in the world. You couldn't drop. <laughs> it was all, it was just wonderful. It was like him interacting with his shadow, as I remember. Yeah, yeah. He was interacting with his shadow and his shadow was the one doing the juggling. He had nothing. I think he might have done three and then he threw them. But the whole five ball routine was just him miming with the shadow doing the real routine. It was brilliant. He's another performer I'd like to have on the podcast. He had another moment at the IGA where he came out and it was like the first time we really saw club swinging. Mm. He was he was one of our first early experts in club swinging and Mm. he competed and he beat uh, Edward Jackman because Al was so much more dynamic and exciting and just and he couldn't drop, you know, with the club swinging. So he's a very uh, underappreciated, I think, juggler, you know, in the States and maybe, uh, you know, in yeah. the history of juggling. Because he's also very, uh, very modest. Him and Barrett Felker, uh, the Gizmo yeah. guys, never wanted to do anything publicly, you know, for jugglers. Right. So where are we going back to? Well, okay, we're going back to the festival. So you were talking about how you just worked in Bath. And I was asking what your first professional performances were. I mean, as far as paid. Right. So then... Out of the blue, we were approached to be the speciality act at a pantomime in Bristol running over the winter. But this was like a major, this is a 2,000-seater auditorium with um, a couple of comedians from England called Cannon and Ball who, you know, had Saturday night show on television. It was, a, it was on the top A-grade pantos of the country. Now explain pantomimes, though, before we go on. That's another term we don't use. Like we only use pantomime to like talk about like Marcel Marceau that he does pantomime, but these are big variety shows, correct? Pantomimes. Pantomimes are like traditional children's stories done where the male lead is a woman, um, and they have you know characters that it's always done in a certain sort of tongue-in-cheek way, and there are certain characters where there'll always be. I don't know if you can talk in terms of Joseph Campbell. There'll always be a nature sure. spirit, which could be an old lady, but it's going to be a man. That's going to be the dame, you know. So the dame is a man dressed up as a woman, who's generally the nice, you know, helper. And then you'll have the baddie, who which could be seen as the as the monster in, in in Joseph Campbell work, and that would be the sheriff of Nottingham. An often used pantomime, which was the one I was in, is called the Babes in the Wood, which is the story of an evil sheriff who abducts two small children and takes them to the woods. You wouldn't get away with it nowadays, thinking of that. And where do the uh, where do the variety acts fit into this? So you'll have dancers, and then traditionally the opening of the second half will be a variety act. So in this case, it was a troop of six of us. So we became like the male backup. We were the we would dress up as the as Robin Hood. You've heard of Robin Hood and his merry men. Well, we were the merry men. We were the merry men. So we were Robin's merry men. But then we dress up in white tights for the different pageant moments. It'll always have a big ending. So our big ending was there was a it had the largest on-stage waterfall in England. So it was about two stories high hmm. and there's waterfall upstage. So in the last scene, the waterfall would come down and we'd pageant through the waterfall. There's always a chase scene in uh, a pantomime. So I dressed up as the gorilla 
So there was a chase scene with a a gorilla, a ghost and Superman, use of the trap door, a bomb. You know, you're running around the passerelle, so you're running between the orchestra and the audience, getting right in close to them. It's a very traditional English winter theatre production where you take the family. It's always kiddie friendly. Uh, We did 84 shows. We were rehearsing from about November and finished the end of January. But that was the point where I literally went, "Okay, I'm giving up working in restaurants. I had to get an equity card. So I was asked what my equity name would be. And I just wrote Haggis and then McLeod. And and then ever since then, I've been known as Haggis McLeod. And so you and Charlie started working in uh, 84 together? Yeah, I would say, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And then what kind of percentage was your solo work versus your work with Charlie? Was it primarily duo or did you kind of split it up? No, it was pretty much all duo. I really wasn't doing any solo work then. But at that point, I must admit, you know, Dan, I got into juggling because I like juggling. I never really wanted to be a performer. But I'll say that with Charlie, because the routines we were doing were not terribly difficult. I mean, not by just today's standards. But yes, in those days, it's seen, you know, seven clubs. I would do five clubs. I would do seven balls. We do high unicycles and fire. Nothing new on that. It was well-skilled, but the show was of such a level that I felt so comfortable. It never, we never worried about the drops. In fact, we used to say, if, you don't, if you're not dropping, put a drop in, because you can get a lot more fun out of having a drop than having no drops. Well, what did you say? This was your, this was your I guess, one of your taglines. I read this in the, in the Wikipedia. Mm. It's not the dazzling display of devil-may-care dexterity. It's more the complete clash of personalities. Is that how you saw your act? That it was more like you and Charlie as, as people before you were jugglers? Yes, yeah, certainly it was It was always about the people and our attitudes. I mean, one thing Charlie used to say, which I liked, which was, you know, we're here to do a job. The job is the juggling. The juggling is just what we told you we're going to do. How we do it is the interesting thing. And certainly with the routines, the way the routines flip-flopped, it would be, you know, in one routine, he would be the one that couldn't quite do it. And then the next routine, I'd be the one that couldn't quite do it. So when it came to the end, I was the one playing. I couldn't do the unicycle. The status wasn't always one way. It, it flip-flopped from one person to the other. And I would say that that was one of the hardest things when we tried to cut the routines down to sort of do a tight eight, min- eight minutes. There didn't seem enough time to get the personalities in. It became much more about a tight juggling routine for eight minutes than us and our personality. I mean... One of the things that we held on a lot was I could do five balls for a long, long time. I don't know why, apart from possibly using, I did use wrist weights when I started, but suddenly I went from nothing to being able to do five balls for up to half an hour. You know, and <laughs> wow. so we seven minutes in the show, I could lock out for seven minutes, but this gave Charlie the chance to then play around. You know, and on the street, I was a great believer of something. There's always got to be something happening. So me just bobbling five balls and Charlie talking to the crowd and and playing around with what I'm doing and trying to do it, that always kept the audience. There was always this tension. I think once you put five balls up, then there's a tension there and people won't really leave until they see the end. That's where I'm at, yeah. Now, would you consider like a, a straight man comic relationship or are you saying you were sort of switched back and forth in your routine with Charlie? In... A routine would probably be, I'd suggest it because I'm better at it, or Charlie would suggest it and I wouldn't be so good at it. That was generally what it was about. But we were very cutting to each other. I mean, not cutting, but yeah, 
it was always about <laughs> our relationship more than I wouldn't say you were cutting, but there definitely was a level of, of competitiveness that I would see in your act and sort of a, a one-upmanship, you know, between the two of you. Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. Now, what year did, uh, did Glastonbury start that you started attending? And, and what was your involvement in the beginning of Glastonbury? Uh, I jumped the fence uh, as a punter in, uh, in English, uh, as a member of the public. Okay, punter, yeah. Yeah, punter. Uh, in 82 and 83. In 84, I went to Glastonbury with the Walcott Village Hall jugglers, as, and we were teaching a juggling workshop in the children's area at Glastonbury Festival for a lady called Arabella Churchill, who I never met that year at all. It was a very muddy year. Most things struggled to get off the ground. And I, when I picture Glastonbury, I always tend to picture mud. Is that, so you say it's a muddy year. Are there years it's not muddy? Or, or oh, yes. I just... and they, they, <laughs> there are. I, they, I hold them close to my heart. There's years when on the Monday afterwards, you can look at the grass and go, we could just do this again next week. And it's lovely <laughs> when the grass is green on the Monday. It needs a little bit of rain. Don't get me wrong. If it's too right. dry, it can be just as bad. And when it's hot, it can be as, as debilitating as that. So 84 did that. 85, I went back and I think Bella booked me and Charlie. But Charlie was doing the bookings at that point. So Charlie dealt with Arabella. We went back in 85 and I think me and Charlie did shows. And that happened in 86. Now explain what Glastonbury is, for the people who don't know. It's a big, giant music festival. Has it always been that way, or did it develop that way? It's a festival developed primarily as a music festival. Uh, back in 1970 and 1971 were the first two years. That came off the back of things like Woodstock and the Isle of Wight Festival. How many days is it? It's generally over a weekend, but it's now officially five days. That's Wednesday through to Sunday. And I work there. So, it, yeah, it's a massive festival. Um, 230,000 people, um, let's say 170,000 ticket holders plus 30,000 crew plus everybody else. So it's over 200,000 people. It's held over a 500-acre farm with another 1,000 acres of parking and camping around it. You can camp on site. Uh, it's it stabilized after going through quite a lot of hard years. At one point in the late 90s, you could get on a train from London with no Glastonbury ticket. You could get a train, you'd arrive close to the site, a bus would pick you up and you could arrive off site without a ticket, at which point you simply had to jump the fence. And it got very out of hand and we were getting close to not having our license. So in 2000, they built a super fence that is eight kilometers long and getting longer every year. So that's five miles wow. in a circle. It's a five mile circle circle with a festival inside. Hmm. Well, I'd like to go now, of course, it's still going. What is the projected return of Glastonbury? Obviously it's not going this year. Are they thinking 2022 for it to come back? I hope so because hope it's so. my main source of income. I, I said I'd be working on it right now. We would have just started middle of February, early February. We've got to hope that we can do the festival in 2022. That said, I don't see there's a way of doing Glastonbury light, L-I-T-E, if you yeah. like. I think it's an all or nothing deal. I don't see how you get through, get around mosh pits. I don't see how you get around cheek by chow camping. You know, I mean, the camping isn't spacious. People are camping right next to each other. 
we could reduce the numbers, but whether that would make it financially viable. Also, a lot of people from the 2020 festival are holding tickets through to the next event because it's very hard to get the tickets. The tickets sell out in 14 minutes last time. That's 170,000 tickets sold out in 14 minutes. So if you've got a Glastonbury ticket, you're holding on to it for the next time it happens. I would hope it's next June. I would hope that by Christmas of this year, we have enough of a plan in place to say that, yes, we can start working on it. Yeah, because you need a lot of lead time for those things. It's not something you can just throw together a couple of months ahead of time. No, a couple of months wouldn't do it. We need six months. Let's go back to your relationship with Arabella. How did it develop? Because you're saying the first couple of years, you didn't have much involvement with her. How did you then, you know, your relationship progress? We went back and did 87 at Glastonbury and Bella asked us if we'd come and do a show at her children's festival, which she held in the Abbey Park playground in Glastonbury. So just quickly, Glastonbury is a town of 9,000 people in Somerset. In the centre of it is a very old abbey uh, and it grounds and it's a beautiful setting and we had a, a little play park there that was walled and separate so very safe for the children. Bella asked if me and Charlie would come and do shows there in 87 and by that time I'd started working with Zippo's Circus. Uh, me and Charlie were touring with them for their winters and some of their summer stuff but Zippo's at that point was a Mercedes 308 and a small marquee but it's now grown into one of the biggest and best circuses in England. I don't know what that meant. A Mercedes, what, what does that mean? Oh, it's a, it's a van, long white van. It was just basically a big white van. And that oh, was... I see. So you're saying it started like it's just in a van and now it's one of the biggest circuses in England. Yeah, thanks to a man called Martin Burton. Yes, it is. And I went to do the shows in Glastonbury and there I set eyes on Arabella and she set eyes on me and... We pretty much instantly fell in love and started seeing each other. Uh, I went off to do a winter tour circus with Zippos of cathedral cities in England, and Bella used to follow me around. You know, she'd drive to wherever, you know, hundreds of miles. She'd drive <laughs> to come and see me and whisk me away to a hotel or something. Well, you are a very handsome man. Thank you very much. You're very tall. <laughs> and I like to think I still am. No, you are. You're very, you're very, you aged very well. You're very distinguished. Thank you very much. And so Bella and I got together and she quickly became pregnant. So by the next year, 88, I didn't really know what I got myself into because although Bella had said, you know, it was known that Bella was the granddaughter of Winston Churchill, I never really realized that would be such a big thing when she got pregnant. So we ended up getting married in a double wedding with Michael, Evis and... What had happened is Michael had come round with his wife, in inverted commas, Jean, Evis, and Michael's very you know, inquisitive. Haggis, when are you going to make a good woman of Arabella? <laughs> Having just told me five minutes before that, that he and Jean had been living in sin for 28 years. And I just said, well, Michael, if you marry Jean, I'll marry Bella. And we all looked at each other and went, right, we'll have a double wedding then. Okay, oh, nice. cool. And that was lovely. Had a double wedding and a beautiful uh, reception at Worthy Farm where the, the festival was. So in 88, there was no festival. Bella just had a baby. Michael had a year off just to let the land grow fallow. Um, we then set off. You know, I just sold a flat in Bath that I'd bought, that I, I, you know, I got a mortgage on and then I moved in with Bella, so I sold the flat. So we started taking the winters away. 
as from sort of the first winter in 89. I think that's the first time. Oh, no. Winter 88, we went to Hawaii. That was our first year in Hawaii. So we were traveling around the world then over the winters. But this meant, and I was doing solo shows. So that's really where my solo show started, was about 88 when I was abroad. And what did people think about the juggling connection? Like when you hear the name Churchill, oh. did people then go, oh, uh, she married a juggler. Was that oh, kind yeah, of yeah, a yeah. thing? No, 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 no. The press clippings were, yeah. Churchill catches her juggler, you know, all these. <laughs> yeah, it was all, I, was, I wasn't really prepared for it, you know, and... Bella had led such an extraordinary life as a child and young woman, but she never shouted about it. So things like when Jess was about nine or 10 or 11, Jess came back from school and started quoting the um, I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King. And Bella went, oh, I met him. <laughs> what do you mean you met Martin Luther King? Oh, yeah, me and my father went over, you know, uh, represent uh, the Senate, I think. We went over there and we met Martin Luther King. And then she would have been about 18 at the time. I mean, she used to play on the sand of the Mediterranean with Jackie Onassis. And Jackie Onassis was a friend of hers when she was younger. She incredibly strange things. And then when I married Bella, you know, you go to these Churchill dinners and, and there'd be, I don't, I mean, I... You'd have people, Prince Charles, Lady Di, the Queen Mother, the Queen, and not that you know, but... Well, I can picture it. It sounds very, uh, very exciting. So Lady Soames, who was Bella's great aunt, so Churchill's only surviving granddaughter, who sadly died about four years ago. Mary Soames was amazing. Mary used to love introducing me to people as Bella's husband. And then she'd say, and, 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 and you'll never guess, you'll never guess what it does for a living. I was introduced to the Duke of Devonshire, who's a very tall, stately, regal-looking man of about 80 years old. And Mary stood between us, and she's only about five foot four. And we're both six foot, he's taller than me, six foot something. And um, she's going, the introduction, she's going, and you'll never, you'll never guess what he does for a living. He's a juggler. And the Duke of Devonshire, calm as you like, goes, a juggler? do you know someone called Howie Bailey? Howard Bailey? And I went, yeah, I know Howie. Oh, yes, well, his father's a good friend of mine. Now, I happen to know that Howie's father was the gardener for the Duke of Devonshire. So Howie Bailey is from Juggling.TV and used to be with Feeding the Fish, and Howie had told me that he knew the Duke of Devonshire. So Mary Soames <laughs> is in the middle of the two of us. Now cannot work out why we're having a friend in common. <laughs> it was just priceless priceless that was very good that's, that's funny yeah and i think me and bella started traveling about late 80s and then we met so many key people charlie brown if you look at there's a great book i recommend anybody if, if you're interested in glastonbury festival it's available now it's a 50th 50th anniversary book it's a big book it's, I think it's going to retail for about 50 bucks in America, but it's beautiful. And it shows the history of the festival. And you can see clearly from about 88, suddenly the amount of circus and theater acts just explodes because we went around the world and found all these amazing performers and invited them to the festival. And they all came. Charlie Brown came one year, helped me put up the stages, performed on the stages and helped me to take them down again. It was lovely. Yeah, I have to have him on the podcast as well. Another... American juggler who's uh, was very important in the eighties for with his cigar box juggling, very yeah, revolutionary, yeah, and his hats, but yes, yeah, cigar, cigar his box, and his hats and his cigar box, yeah, and a lovely passer and a lovely man. 
But we picked up people like that, Dino Lampa. I know, and in those first few years, yeah, we had some amazing, amazing jugglers. I mean, Frank Olivier's been coming over. Paul Nathan's been coming over regularly. We had the, I got the Caramarts off. So one day when they weren't, it was their day off, they were doing a run in London. And Paul kindly said he'd come down and they came down and did one show for us. This year I was hoping, through Paul Nathan's help, to get, um, oh, name's gone, bowling ball juggler. Very, very funny. Michael Davis. Michael Davis. Well, of course, he's the godfather of uh, comedy juggling, Michael Davis. Yeah, and you're the father, yeah. <laughs> I know you've tried to get me, and I've never been able to get over there, and I've always regretted that. So. Yeah, we'll take care of you. I know you're not a happy camper, but we will take care of you. For you, I would do it. I'd come out and camp, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm not a camper. But yeah, so we pulled in, we were, you know, and it suddenly became then, Glastonbury became on the radar as like, you're aware of what I mean by, uh, certainly in America, um, snowbirds, you know, people who fly for an endless summer. So during those 80s and 90s, a lot of acts would spend the winter, our winter, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia, New Zealand, then come back to Europe or America, Canada for that summer. So we became one of those places that it was kind of on the on the list of where people would call in. We were very, very lucky. And I am still very, very lucky that people want to come to Glastonbury to perform. I want to come. So next time I have a chance, the next time yeah. I, if I'm still performing, of course, it's, uh, you know, I'm getting a bit older. You're not, you're, you're staying the same, but I'm getting a bit older. So yeah, uh, let's go back to the career. What year did, were you a, a trio? I never even know you had a trio. Haggis and Chips. Yeah, well, that was really, that came out of three people, me, Charlie, and Pippa, who became Charlie's wife. What were we, I don't know, I think we just ended up doing a threesome, you know, a three-person act. And then we seemed to be getting a lot of auditions. We'd done the three-person, we'd done parts of the three-person act in the Panto. And then we got on to a variety TV show called New Faces as a threesome. But again, it was one of those things where it was an eight minute thing that was quite hard to get the characters across in that eight minutes. And we, were, we knew we'd never win, but we, you know, we ended up on live English television on Saturday night to a live audience of 13 million people. And that look on my face when you see me come on with that suit is absolute terror. <laughs> I made one mistake, which was I decided I should not get nervous. But in not getting nervous, I went dead a little bit. I now know how to transfer that energy. Well, it's an interesting act because if people watch it, it's on YouTube. You're called Mr. McCloud and you come out in a suit and Charlie is like a workman. So in that situation, it's very defined, uh, like you say, the status. Well, yeah, we had to do it with the costume because we couldn't do it with the patterns. So that's sort of, you know, we would never come out like that normally. Yeah. So it was a bit of a shot in the dark, but it was, it was good experience. I would have said the panto was great experience, you know, to be able to run the same show 84 times with a live orchestra and um, 2,000 seater auditorium. That was the really good experience. Working with TV, it, it was okay. It was okay. It was, it was interesting. It was very scary. Very scary at the time. Well, technically on television is very scary because, mm. because we know at any second it could all be on the floor, right? So it's, it's, uh, yeah. People don't really understand, I think, that in TV, like the directors and stuff, like, okay, wrap it up or whatever they're telling you to do. It's just making it worse <laughs> as far as your nerves. <laughs> so, yeah, I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot, me and Charlie and myself solo did a lot of children's morning TV in England. I did a lot of the shows. That was always fairly scary because that was live. I was just looking back at some of the old show, show reels, you know, doing seven balls at 9.30 in the morning for a kid's TV show live on TV. Well, nowadays we have a different experience because like you were saying, 
how you came up in 84 and I came up in the, in the same years. Mm. Like we didn't have the internet. And now you have a lot of performers who put together videos for YouTube and they're amazing performers, but it's very different to be able to control that aspect of juggling, you know, the dropping aspect. Yeah, my hat routine that I do now, it's ideally performing a hat routine with no drops. I'm okay with one drop, but then when it gets to two drops, I recently did it where I went out and the, the music wasn't working properly. And it was working, but I couldn't hear the vocals and I was timing it off the vocal. And luckily it was so in my body, this routine, that I arrived at the end and I could hear, basically I couldn't hear the vocal line, but I could only hear the melody. And the melody on this song, it's I Get a Kick Out of You by Frank Sinatra. The melody just repeats. So I had to go through the routine as if I wasn't listening, you know, I didn't really, couldn't really follow the music because I couldn't hear the voice. And the voice was where all the, the, the stops and starts are. And towards the end, I was like, okay, it sounds like it's going to finish now. And it, the music finished and I finished with the music. But I would not have been able to do that if I could not do that routine literally without the prop backwards first thing in the morning. It was because I, I knew that routine so well that saved me. And that's a good one on YouTube if people want to see it. You have one from uh, Belly Acres, which is the... Hawaiian Vaudeville Festival, uh, yeah. their 25th anniversary, and it's in 2012. Yeah. And it's you doing your hat routine to I Get a Kick Out of You, the Frank Sinatra song. Yeah, that's it. I'm, actually, in this lockdown, I just uh, released a couple of other ones. I've been going through old hard drives, been burning stuff off of uh, VHS, as we remember it. Mm -hmm. And what I realized about the VHS is, you see, these days when people practice, they just leave the camera on. And in those days, it was like you'd warm up, you'd practice, you'd get the trick, and then you'd go, okay, and you just have a couple of goes with you. just you wouldn't film the whole session you'd end up with hours of vhs so in those days trying to get the, the trick to a good standard then you go, oh, i'll just take it to, I'll, I'll do a take now and see how it comes out well, let's talk about that uh practice shot you have of you doing five club back crosses mm. that's another because i did my research i tried to see all those videos that on you and on the youtube right and there's a really nice one i never realized you were that good to be honest. Yeah, neither did I. No, that was <laughs> that was getting up to, you know, that's nearly, I think that's 49 throws. That's up near my personal best at that point, but that's after an hour. It's certainly in, in numbers juggling, the first hour is really a warm-up to where you really start to push whatever it is you're, you're wanting to push. The idea of walking into a studio and just putting five club back crosses, 50 throws up, I never got to that standard. My favorite was five clubs on triples, so I could do five on triples into back crosses, five, 10 back crosses, catch, stop. That I kind of got. But that run of 50 is pretty much near to my best at that time. And I think I was pretty much at my peak at that time. It's very nice, very nice uh, style, very nice um, form. And I thought, wow, that was, because uh, five club back crosses in the day, like you say, we were all influenced by Ignatov, especially his, I guess the video was like in 1977 of him with the uh, Moscow Circus. Yeah. And that's the first time a lot of us saw five club back crosses. And that was sort of the gold standard. Now it's probably five club back crosses into pirouette back in the back crosses or something like that. Yeah. Did you watch that? Um, I think it's Chile or Peru. They had the national convention and they had the five club competition. There must have been 40 people there <laughs> doing five clubs. But the winner only, I think it was a minute and a half. Really? And I was like, oh. I'd still be in for the good shape for that, definitely. I think the, the record's about 45 minutes. I guess it's still Gatto, is it? Or I'm not sure. I know Gatto had it at 45 minutes for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, that was, that. yeah. I would almost be certain if after this podcast, somebody can go out there and do more than 45 minutes. I never got, I could get about five minutes with five clubs. 
That was my best. And that's using big chunky renegades because I was a big renegade fan. Uh, that back cross run is with renegades. I like heavy clubs for back crosses because then the weight does most of the work. And what was your seven ball records like? Like what was your best seven ball run? Best in a show, probably 30 seconds, getting up to a minute, maybe. Nothing up beyond a minute, definitely nothing more than But it, uh, for me, the seven balls was always about doing 20 seconds every time rather than pushing beyond the minute. I, it's, it was so hard, and I was using quite heavy beanbags. I was a big fan of big props, big, big beanbags. It was all about putting it up for 10, 20 seconds. I might, when I used to start, I used to go out and say, ladies and gentlemen, the world record for this is only 11 seconds, which was true back in about 83, 84, Ignatov. If you look in the Guinness Book of Records, about 83, 84, prior, this is pre-Gatto, the world record for seven balls was 11 seconds. So I would go out there and say I'd beat the 11-second record, which I could do. And what year did you make your uh, club juggling and passing DVD? Is that still available? Uh, it probably is, but it feels very uh, dated now. It's probably available online, I would think. I'm not getting any money from it anymore. I did for a while, and it was good. Oh, nice. That was, a, that was a really nice thing to do because right from the very start, after the bath workshop, a circus school in Bristol opened up called Full Time by a man called Richard Ward, which went on to be what is now Circomedia, which is a good physical theatre, drama-based, much more physical theatre and circus. I have to say now they've got their own indoor aerial space, so probably aerial's good there too. But it was very strong physical theatre at the time. This circus school opened up, and I found myself teaching juggling at the circus school in 85 in central Bristol, but also taking classes as well. The teaching part had always been in me. I found myself enjoying teaching, and I, always, I still enjoy teaching. It's one of the, my favourite things. So I was approached by a video company in Bristol in about 1990, was after Tbilisi, yes, 1992, 93. And yeah, we did this great little video of me teaching three balls and tricks and bits of fun of the juggling, of his, the history of juggling. And then we did a second video with me and a guy called Rod Laver, who I think you may know. The big pop juggler, Rod Laver? Yeah, Rod Laver. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's great. He yeah. was one of my students originally at Circomedia, and now he's boss of juggling in Circomedia and at um, the London Circus School. Yeah, I don't forget what I saw, but he had a wonderful ping pong ball routine. Mm. Uh, I think it was an IGA maybe many years ago, at uh, probably 25, 30 years ago now, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also does a really good impersonation of you. I think you're one of his heroes. <laughs> I, I had my moments when, when, when my, the voice and everything were quite well known, I guess. Yes, I guess. It's the pauses. Oh, you're so good at your, your you know, the way you write your lines and your deadpan delivery is so good. And some of that crazy stuff you brought over to Belfast, some of these crazy tricks, it was lovely. I liked Belfast. And let's talk about some of these teaching festivals then, or other uh, circus schools. Where else have you taught? Because you've taught sort of internationally. What are some of your experiences teaching around the world? Two ways I've done it, really. I've taught, I teach, I'd like to say regularly, but I've been lucky enough to be invited to circus festivals in Australia on a regular basis, especially the one, the beautiful one that used to happen in to Tasmania, courtesy of Tony Rook. That's now finished. And now the main one I tend to attend is um, the Western Australian Circus Festival, which is south of Perth in Western Australia. And I teach there for three weeks. And that's really interesting to, to take in three weeks, 
it's not uncommon for me to take a, a person in week one who can't juggle three balls and have them passing clubs by the end of week three. What are some good tips? What do you think is, in, what, should, what should someone focus on first? Would it be like the, the way they stand? How do you sort of progress that quickly with somebody? Progressing it quickly is really down to them. You know, some people really struggle to be with posture wise. Yeah, it depends how they stand. If their hips are, uh, uh, technically speaking, anterior or posterior. Jay Gilligan has posterior hips, so he can stand and juggle with his knees not bent. He doesn't need to bend his knees. If you watch Jay, mm. he's got totally straight legs because his hips are tipped backwards, like he's tipping water out of the front of his hips. Whereas some people have hips that are turned backwards, in which case they need to bend their knees. So you, you look at things like that to begin with. People, I believe, have spheres in a lab and dance sense. The, the sphere where if you touch your fingertips in front of you, that gives you a circle in front of you. People are able to concentrate in that sphere. Certain people are able to concentrate in that sphere a lot. And then that I would name the one that I would say is the most iconic is somebody who makes chain mail and a chain mail maker will work on something an inch by an inch and that will be their day's work. So they're working in a very small space. You look at uh, people who are card magicians, they tend to work in that purse, that first personal space. You look at jugglers when they start picking up Diablo, devil stick, cigar box, they're working in that small, not small, but that's in front of them personal space. Whereas I've always enjoyed the space above me with the sports. It's always been, you know, the, the sky is the limit for me. So when you're teaching somebody, you become aware of maybe where they like to work most, hmm. where they feel most comfortable. Some people are expansive everywhere, but some people tend to like working in a small space or with props just in front of them. I find that over years and years of teaching, it's trying to say as much as you can in as few as words as possible. One of the things that is a light bulb moment for most people is when, you, when they're learning numbers juggling, if it's in a, a cascade pattern, the simple words, you catch the first one before you throw the last one, it tells you where your timing is if you're flashing seven balls or nine balls. You know you've got to catch that first one before you throw that last one. Otherwise, your timing's out and you're doing a flash. Yeah. I always believe in appropriate effort. If somebody's making the leap from three balls to four balls, they're going to imagine that's going to be the hardest trick they're ever going to do. So they're going to give it 100% effort. We'll actually just dial down the effort because it's not such a big leap. The key things you can say to people, I'm a big fan at the moment of trying to keep your head still wherever you can. Just for me, just so that I can see things better. You know, I never understand. You've always, Everybody's tried that one where you juggle three balls and lean your head over to one side and suddenly all the balls fall out of the basket, which you can learn to deal with. But at the beginning, moving your head from side to side is, or, or, or throwing a club to somebody when your head's not level is a lot harder than keeping your eyes straight when you bend down for that club to pass it to them. Um, oh, so many, Dan, so many after years of that stuff. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be able to take a workshop with you in the future at one of uh, these juggling festivals. Let's go back to the past one more time because there was a festival you kind of brought up just very briefly but you organized the very first juggling festival in Tbilisi, Georgia, Russia. Yeah. What was that experience like? So tell me about that. That, that was one of the most life-changing experiences for the 164 people I took. And I'm not kidding. It was life-changing for a lot of people. I'd had the pleasure. So in 88, when I moved to Glastonbury, there was a local theater company here called Gog Theater. And they asked me to be in a play 
where I played the fool, basically. We did this wonderful workshop with a Japanese indoor kite maker. Now, I know you like your silly things. Have you ever worked with indoor kites? No, but I know what you're talking about, and they're fascinating. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. So they're made of split bamboo, very, very, very two millimeter wide split bamboo cross. And then basically you can use cling film. And these get the ultra light kites. And so it means if you attach one to your finger, you can basically play with it in a room. I mean, I'm sure you can buy them now, but we did a workshop where we made them. And so I use this image a lot, the, the fool with a stick with a kite on the end of it. So I'm actually following the kite that I'm moving. So yeah, images like that. So I, I did, um, I worked with a theater company uh, in two or three productions that we toured around England. We took to France and then we, it's a whole other story, but, the theatre company made a connection with a theatre company in Georgia, which at the time was a republic, or a rather, yeah, a republic of the Soviet Union. And Georgia is on the Black Sea, just north of Turkey, north of Iran. And so we were invited over to Georgia as a theatre company in 89. Went over there, it was amazing, amazing place. Just oh, some of the stories, sad and sad and, and tragic and, and beautiful all at the same time. I came back and then we had the... I think we had the juggling convention in Oldenburg in 89, the European. And Tim from Institute Jonglage, Tim Roberts, sorry, Tim Roberts. Yes, Tim Roberts, um, who went on to be really big in circus, uh, both here and in Montreal. Tim asked if anybody knew, they, they said they wanted to try and arrange a, a juggling convention in the Soviet Union. And did anybody know a way of doing it? I went, yeah, I think I can do this. Because I'd visited, you know, Georgia had um, a, the second oldest stone-built circus building in the Soviet Union, apart from Moscow. So it had this massive, massive, beautiful stone-built circus building. And one thing the Russians did like was organization. So that we knew the man who was the head of the theater union in Georgia. That meant he was in charge of everything that went on any stage in any form, from puppetry to ballet to theater to circus, anything. And we knew him. So we went back to him and said, we've got this idea of bringing jugglers over to Tbilisi from all around the world. And that was at the time they were just about heading for a civil war. And we organized it. And it was £280 for a week, including the flight flying out of Berlin. And we hired a plane from Berlin to Moscow. I think we maybe, yeah, we hired one. So it was full of jugglers, flew to Moscow. And then we had... The flight from Moscow to Tbilisi was a two-hour flight that cost, I think, about 60 pence. It was ridiculous because it was all in rubles. And I had 160 jugglers there from all around the world. Sean Gandini, Katty Kane, uh, Marcus Marconi, bless his soul, Anton Top, bless his soul, Frank Olivier, uh, Cindy Marvel came, Fritz Brem who'd been organizing trips. I mean, it was, it was lovely. And we made shows in the circus building. We went on tours and it was a unique event. It was a really unique event. And as we left, the opposition, Democratic Party, took over the circus building and used it for a mortar post. We were basically, we left and a civil war ensued. Well, we're returning at the end of our time. Let's do a couple quick lightning rounds questions. Go on then. All right. Okay, Glastonbury. Best musical performance you ever saw there? Um, give me three. Give me three. 
I'll give you one that you'll know. Um, Dave Matthews Band, side of the stage. I'd managed to convince Michael to get them. And I think they were in the country and nobody knew who they were. So he put them on at 11 o'clock on the main stage in the morning. And I just stood there with the girlfriends and wives at the side of the stage watching Dave Matthews. And I love Dave Matthews. One, um, musical performance. Two, watching Pete Gabriel play on the main stage while I was upstage behind the, the gauze curtain so I could see him and the audience and I was dancing. And thirdly, going back, say, you know, Van Morrison in his prime circa 1987, 1988. Well, you got me with Peter Gabriel because he's my, he's my number one favorite pop star. Okay, me too. Pete Gabriel is on my top 10 ever, best albums ever. But as a performer too, because he also was a, studied mime and uh, was a wonderful live performer. So, Well, I was blessed because I grew up in Bath and Salisbury Hill is oh, Bath. Yeah, right, right. He has a studio there, doesn't he? he has, has yeah, yeah, studio. the Woolpack. Yeah, the Woolhole. So I knew, I used to serve him in the restaurants. He was very sweet. He used to come in in the restaurant where I worked. And when he'd leave, he'd literally weigh and bow as he left, like he was leaving the stage. It was beautiful. <laughs> he comes in and out of my life in several different times. Yeah, one of my, like I say, my favorite performer. If someone asked me, who would I like to meet mm. before I die? I'd say Peter Gabriel would certainly be up there, so... You've done a lot of things in your life, Mr. McLeod. Thank you. Let's talk about the Children's World Trust. Uh, is that a charity that's still? Children's World Charity. Well, Arabella, uh, before I met her, had been working in charity work in Africa with lepra, uh, lepra, oh, leprosy. Oh, yes, but that's that. Yeah, with people with leprosy. But this lepra was the name of the charity. Okay. So she was. I think she felt she had to do something good with her life, and she wasn't. Yeah, normal sort of Churchill, really. She was a bit of a, a black sheep for a while for certain reasons, which you can read about in the Glastonbury book if you wish. So in 79, the festival came back in 79. Bella was in charge of it in many ways. Michael gave Bella and a group of people the go to run a festival. And it was International Year of the Child. And as far as I can tell, it's the first festival, certainly in the UK, who had a designated children's area. Had a children's area in 1979. In 1980, Bella decided to take this children's area, which she called Children's World, and make it a charity. So she started a charity called Children's World, which was primary at that time aimed at helping children with severe and uh, moderate learning difficulties and integrating them into society. Uh, this charity has been going on now and still is here today. And I'm very pleased to say that we just secured enough funding to get us through this year because normally the funding for the charity would come out of uh, volunteer work at the festival. So uh, the Glastonbury Festival provides a lot of work for stewards, litter pickers from charities around the country, including Greenpeace, Oxfam, WaterAid. So those charities make money from the, the festival. Uh, so having no festival last year nor this year means that those charities will miss out. So Children's World is still alive and well, and you can visit it at childrensworldcharity.org. At the moment, we're no longer able to do face-to-face -face work, so we've just switched to a lot of stuff online. And we're hoping that as we come out of this lockdown, moving into the summer, we'll be able to do more stuff face-to-face. -face. And I think that's, uh, that's the key with the whole industry, is that we're not going to see large festivals this year, but we're hoping second half of the summer that smaller festivals will be able to go on well let's hope the future is bright for performers this has been a very difficult time especially for our fellow jugglers and fellow performers let's hope that uh 
like you're saying, that things will come back with small festivals first and then the big large festivals in 2022, like Glastonbury. Yeah, I think as a booker, one thing I have realized is that where are the, where are the new acts going to come from? Because when I go back to booking, say, say we have a festival next year, what new stuff is going to be there? I mean, I think that's it. We've always, it's just slightly stalled in some ways. I think creatively not, but just people getting, getting, you know, getting their acts together. It's going to be interesting. What, what options, how many applications I get for 2022. Well, it's like you said in the very beginning, this idea of doing a lot of shows, like when you were started at the waterfront or mm. doing the shows in Bath, this mm. ability to go out there and do five shows a day and, and look at each show and compare them and change them and, switch this and switch that, that evolution process has been derailed. Like here we have Pier 39, there's no one out there. No. So the new acts, they need this development time. They can't go right to a Glastonbury festival and say, I want to start here. Yeah. So yeah. we've been pushed back a couple of years, but hopefully we'll bounce back even better when people realize what they've been missing, you know, with entertainment. I'll praise that. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you the last word, Ian Haggis McLeod. Anything you want to say to your fellow jugglers as we uh, start this 2021? Anything about Brexit or about the future or just about yourself as an artist to wrap this oh, up? Oh, <laughs> I'd just like to say, you know, never, even when you're down, just keep picking yourself up. Keep trying. Don't get lonely. Don't get moody. Stay strong. You know, stay strong for everybody else. And I'd like to thank all the people out there who've reached out to me to check that I'm okay. And it's good to check on people, just to see how they are. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been the highlight of my evening. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. There can be only one, Ian Haggis McLeod. Thank you. Thank you, Haggis. Thank you so much for being on Drop Everything. Thank really you, Dan. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed episode 92 of Drop Everything with my special guest, Mr. Haggis McLeod. Thank you, Haggis. Much success in your future endeavors. And let's hope Glastonbury comes back better than ever. All right, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. There'll be no festival in person this year, but check out their online festival, 2021 IJA Festival, and come back 2022 for the big return of the in-person festivals in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Go to Amazon.com. Check out my book, Alex the Great, the story of a young street performer mentored by an older street performer to become a performer at Pier 39. All right, go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.